It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And we were hesitant to set up a tent on random, scrubby BLM land where there could be rattlesnakes and spiders hiding. <laughs> What do you not like about it? The scrubbiness? Well, the way I picture it is there isn't an established campsite. You're just parking your car along a dirt road. So now you're taking your tent and you're putting it on land that hasn't been cleared. So you might be putting it on one of those um, scrubby plants where anything could be hiding (laughs) underneath. So you're worried that we're going to put our tent on top of a scrubby plant. And there's going to be a a rattlesnake hiding underneath it. it. (laughs) Well, I think... I think most of the dispersed camping, they're actually little pull-offs. But if we have to put the tent on top of a scrubby plant, I'll check for snakes before we do it. But I don't think that's going to happen. Well, no. The dispersed camping isn't going to happen in a tent for sure. No scrubby plants, no rattlesnakes, and no spiders. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you to Canyonlands National Park in Utah, a red rock landscape of canyons, buttes, and rivers with incredible recreational opportunities. Canyonlands has something for every visitor. Scenic overlooks, short hikes, challenging hikes, thrilling dirt backroads, and cultural treasures. We'll be talking about all of these, plus some other tips for planning your trip. The best of Canyonlands National Park, coming up next. Okay, Karen. Before we get started, there's some good news to tell everybody. Yes, great news out of Yellowstone National Park. I think most people are aware that that massive flooding that happened in June closed two out of the five park entrances, both the northeast entrance to Cook City and the north entrance to Gardner. And as of this week, they're both reopened. So this is early November 2022. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Tuesday, November 1st is the date that the north entrance is going to be open? Yes. They just came out with a big announcement and said, Tuesday, November 1st at 8 a.m. And, you know, I had this thought, Matt. You want to drive down there. You want to be in line. You're going to bake cinnamon rolls. (laughs) You're going to set up your little camp table at the front of the line and hand out cookies and cinnamon rolls, aren't you? And you're going to be that lady. I wanted to be that lady. However, you know, it would take us at least an entire full day to drive from here to Yellowstone. And then that means we'd have to do it on Halloween to be there 
at 8 a.m. the next morning. So I'm not willing to give up Halloween, but... Because you go you go trick-or-treating. Right. I can't give up all that candy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also... We should tell everyone. It's also the one day a year that you actually dress up like a queen. <laughs> so you're not going to miss... Whether it's Halloween or not, you're not going to miss that day. I don't think we needed to share that piece of information. I don't think that's relevant to any of this. Well, it's relevant to me. I just want people to... Kind of have a little snapshot of what I go through. That queen costume was worth every cent. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. Yes, you have. Anyway, the reason I really wanted to be there at 8 a.m. is because, I don't know if everyone knows this, but they were unable to salvage the road, the main road that runs from Gardner through the north entrance into Mammoth because it was so heavily damaged. So they redid the old Gardner Road. Right. The road that they had been using was right along the river. And as soon as a big flood, like it, it happened this year, comes along, it's just going to take that road out. And so it's a good thing that that old Gardner Road was there because now they they were able to follow it. And then now that's the entrance to the north section. Right. And we had never driven on that road. That is an old stagecoach road that was built in the 1880s. And before they did all this work on it, it was one way, a dirt road. But of course, now that it's going to be this main entrance, they have widened it to two-lane. They have paved it. And I guess they had to change the approach into Mammoth because it was very steep. So they redid a, a new quarter mile of it to make it less steep. I don't know. It's only about a 12-hour drive from our house. <laughs> when you're done doing your trick-or-treating, Monday night, uh-huh. so that would end what? I mean, it ends about 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And we get in the car. 12 hours later, we're there. We'd lose an hour and we could get there by eight o'clock. Could I still wear my queen costume? Just leave it on. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, all joking aside, this is such fantastic news, not just for all of us park goers, but for the darling town of Gardner, Montana, that has been cut off for four months from the park and they have lost all kinds of tourism dollars because nobody was going there because they couldn't access the park anymore. And it's also good news for Cook City. Up, yes, up in the Northeast. Absolutely. They're getting their road open as well. Yes. And I didn't realize that the entire Lamar Valley had been closed also for the last four months. So good news for everybody. In the wintertime, you can drive through the Lamar Valley up to Cook City, but the road beyond the town is closed to cars due to snow. So the road dead ends at Cook City. Right. And currently, the park is closing most of its other roads, getting ready for their winter season. Now, if you haven't been to Yellowstone in the winter, the only entrance that you can drive into and out of is the north entrance. So it was especially important that they got this reopened now so that they could start their winter activities like snowmobiling in the park. From the Mammoth Hot Springs area, then snow coaches take visitors further south into the park. They do plow the road from Mammoth up to Cook City, so you can make that drive in the wintertime. We've done that many times. Um, You can snowshoe along there. Yeah, I love that drive in the winter. There's usually nobody there, and it's really fun to see the bison all covered in snow, digging through the snow, (laughs) trying to find something to eat. And if you're lucky, you can spot wolves there also. 
Yeah, I think we've mentioned before in an episode that uh, we took our family to Yellowstone once for Christmas, and it was absolutely the best Christmas we've ever had. And we did a snowmobile tour on Christmas Eve day. But then on Christmas Day, we drove through the Lamar Valley in the snow. We actually went to Cook City, and we found there was a restaurant that was open on Christmas Day. And that's, I remember. That, that's right. And we were the only ones in the restaurant. And then other people started showing up. So anyway, the restaurant filled up. But yeah, we were there on Christmas Day. That was kind of fun. It was. It seemed magical. So great news about these entrances reopening. And now we can all support the businesses again in Gardner and Cook City and help them get back on their feet. They've had such a tough time. And of course, there were a lot of setbacks with um, the COVID years as well. So I'm excited to go back. Maybe maybe we'll make that track. I don't know. Maybe Monday night (laughs) might be getting in the truck and driving to Gardner. But that's not what today's episode's about, Karen. No. <laughs> it's not about Yellowstone at all. Nor Wyoming, nor Montana. We're actually going to Utah. Going back to Utah, talking about Canyonlands National Park. And we did a trip recently where we went to an area in Canyonlands, which was kind of the last area that we felt like we wanted to see before we did an episode. Right. Uh, and that was Horseshoe Canyon. That's been in my bucket for a long time. As many of you know, we've already done a full-length episode on Arches and Zion and Bryce Canyon and Capitol Reef. And so this was the last piece of the Utah National Park puzzle to fit in. And we're excited to talk about because Canyonlands is big. It has a lot of units and it stretches out over a huge area of land. It's big and diverse. You know, Karen, when we first went to all the national parks, and now it's been 10 to 12 years, a lot of those parks we went to, we were kind of in a hurry and we just, I think, scratched the surface of a lot of them. We just only had so much time. And now looking back over the last 10 years, as many times as we've been back to Canyonlands, boy, that that first trip, we barely saw anything. <laughs> I know. It is hard to believe now because Canyonlands has so much to offer. Hiking trails and cultural sites and dirt roads, scenic drives. But I feel like over the last so that was 12 years ago. We've made up for it. We have. We've seen a lot. There's a couple of things left in the park that we want to do, and we'll talk about those. But let's get into it. Okay. Canyonlands National Park. Where is it? It's on the far eastern side of the state, about the bottom third of the state of Utah. It's close to the border with Colorado. It's not very far from Arches National Park. And really what, what the park is, it encompasses the rivers and the canyons of the Green River and the Colorado River as they come together and the confluence is right in the middle of the park. And this is one of the reasons why the park is divided up in different districts. That confluence is right in the middle of the park, so it divides the park into three distinct landmasses, and then there's a fourth district that we'll talk about. And there are no bridges across the Green or the Colorado Rivers in the park, so you can't get from one landmass to another in the park. Mm -hmm. And so it actually kind of feels like three different national parks. It really does. And it's a lot of driving to see all of the four units. It's a lot of driving because you have to drive around to each one. Canyonlands doesn't get as many visitors as some of the other Utah parks. In 2021, uh, the park had 911,000 visitors. And if you want to compare that to Arches National Park, which had about 1.8 million visitors, twice as many people went to Arches as, as Canyonlands. But 
Canyonlands is four and a half times the land size as Arches. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a hidden gem, if <laughs> you want to call it that. So uh, as we said before, the Colorado and the Green Rivers come together in the center of the park, and it splits the park into four different districts. You have the Island in the Sky District in the north, the Maze District in the southwest, the Needles District in the southeast, and then the small fourth district, which has its own boundaries. It's to the west of Island in the Sky, and that is called Horseshoe Canyon. When I did research for this episode, I have found in some places people will put Horseshoe Canyon as part of the Maze District, and then they call the rivers themselves the Fourth District. So if you're doing your own research, you you might see that also. And the rivers, we'll talk about rafting trips that people do. That is kind of its own special area. But yeah, those are the four districts. Most of the visitation happens in the island in the sky. 70% of the visitors in a given year go to the island in the sky. And then the second most popular district is the Needles. And Needles only gets about 25% of the visitation as the island in the sky. When I think of Canyonlands, I think of them in uh, kind of broad terms. It feels to me like Island in the Sky has incredible overlooks. The scenery is spectacular in every direction, and it has some really great short hikes. Then the Needles District has fantastic, longer, much more challenging hikes. It's really a hiker's park. And then, of course, Horseshoe Canyon is a cultural site. And then you have the maze, which is basically an undeveloped area for outdoor adventurers who have a very reliable Jeep or some kind of a four-wheel drive vehicle. Who know what they're doing and can self-rescue. Which is not us, which is why we haven't been there yet. (laughs) We we need help with our rescues. (laughs) So Karen, I'm hearing, is that music I hear? Is it time for a History Channel episode? Well, yes, Matt, it is. Of course, human history in Canyonlands goes back 10,000 years or so, but let's talk about its much more current national park history. So it was the superintendent of Arches National Park back in the 1950s, Bates Wilson, who first started advocating for this area to be a national park. He would explore the land south and west of Moab in his free time, and he would do it, most of it, on pack trips. He was on a horse so he could cover a lot more ground, and they would camp under the stars, and it, and it sounds sounds quite heavenly, doesn't it? I know. I like the horse part. <laughs> yes. You'll like this, too. He led government officials on Jeep tours featuring campfires and hearty Dutch oven dinners. (laughs) (laughs) It would never have been a park if there was freeze-dried food back then. Could you imagine entertaining people? Here's Here's your bag of food. Let me pour some boiling water on that. It would have never been a park. So he started abdicating for this. And then in 1961, Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, was flying to a superintendent's conference at the Grand Canyon. And when he flew over the confluence of the Green and Colorado Rivers, he was so amazed by the scenery that he asked the pilot to circle a few more times. So all of a sudden, this was on his radar. And after that, he joined one of Bates Wilson's campfire tours. And then he started promoting the establishment of Canyonlands National Park. Well, and that's a great story, but it does kind of point out that so many things in history are just by happenstance, right? He's flying over this area and he's like, wow, this is interesting. Hey, let's, let's circle a few times so I can get a better look. 
and that that leads to this series of events that causes this land to be a national park. You know, probably would have been a become a national park sometime down the road anyway, but you know, some of this is just by accident. I know. Random events that all come together. Now, it took a few years of wrangling of back and forth to actually make Canyonlands into a national park. And uh, that happened in 1964. And it was signed into law by President Johnson. And it seems so appropriate. Bates Wilson was made the first superintendent of the new park. And he's often referred to as the father of Canyonlands. Bates retired from the National Park Service in 1972, but he lived only 20 miles north of Moab, and he served as a chairman of Canyonlands Natural History Association until his death in 1983. So Bates Wilson, thank you for finding out all about Canyonlands and promoting that and making us another national park. That's right. And he, he served the National Park Service all his life, and I think we, uh, we owe a great debt of gratitude to him. So let's talk about these districts separately, because they are separate. Let's start with Island in the Sky. Okay. You know, for all the people who are going to visit the Utah National Parks for the first time, I think this is the place they would want to go, right? Because you can get a taste of Canyonlands. You can do some short hikes. You can go to the overlooks. In one day, you can get a feel for what Canyonlands National Park is. Well, that's right. And there's also a lot of other attractions in the area, particularly if you're going to stay in Moab, which is where you would stay if you're going to go to Island in the Sky. You could stay there. You could camp in the area. There's also Dead Horse Point State Park, which you drive right past on the way to Island in the Sky District. Um, So you want to check that out. Uh, Like we said before, it's only about a half an hour drive from Moab. That's kind of the starting point for your discovery of Canyonlands National Park. If you are a camper and you're not going to be staying in Moab in a hotel, uh, there is a campground in the park, which has 12 sites, and they are first come, first serve. And the campground is open year round. And we first saw it just a few weeks ago, that campground, when we went up to the uh, Green River Overlook. It looked like a nice one. It really did. A lot of trees. It looked like the sites had privacy. It made me want to go camping there just from the look of the campground. The campground is called Willow Flat. And just know if you're going to camp there, there's no water available. So you'll have to bring your own or get it at the visitor center. So let's talk about some of the hikes that we've done in the park, some of our favorites. I think the very first hike we did when we got there the very first time was the Lathrop Trail. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that hike. You hike along the Mesa. It's pretty flat for a while. And then it comes to some pretty spectacular overlooks. Yes, you can do this hike a couple of different ways. Now, we hiked it just to the canyon rim. And that's a five-mile round-trip hike. It's very moderate. It's fairly flat. It does seem like when you start out, because you basically park along one of the park roads, And it just looks like a straight, flat trail through scrub. It does not look very inviting. But boy, when you get to that canyon rim overlook, oh my gosh, the whole world opens in front of you. And it was spectacular. Yeah, and you can then just keep going on this Lathrop Trail down to, it goes all the way to the uh, Colorado River if you want to continue that way. I, I think it gets a lot more strenuous and treacherous. 
Right. You can take it to the White Rim Road. Now, if you want to do that, you know, from beginning to the White Rim Road, it's 12 miles round trip. The elevation change is 1,700 feet. So when you get to the Canyon Overlook, which is as far as we went, you are dropping down 1,700 feet from there. And it is uh, listed as very strenuous. Right. Now, I I think then from the White Rim Road, you could probably hike all the way down to the Colorado River. But that that would be a long hike. That'd be a long day. So you really want to know what you're doing. Now, one of the things I absolutely loved about this trail is while we were hiking along the Mesa, and again, this was, we had just started our parks journey. We had not been to very many parks uh, in 2010 when we were doing this hike. And all of a sudden, we look up and there is this giant bighorn sheep standing, gosh, about 20 feet away from us like a statue. And he had those big horns that curl back. And we just stopped and looked at him and he looked at us and we were, all three of us were just frozen for about 10 seconds. And I have to say, that was one of our coolest wildlife sightings because I had never seen a bighorn sheep before. And just just having it almost appear out of nowhere, it was like something out of a dream. He was looking right at us and I didn't know what that meant. I don't know if he was going to be aggressive. So we kind of just, just froze there. And then all of a sudden he just took off. And I, I think what happened was, the wind changed and he caught wind of us. Right. And then when he smelled us, he, he took off. I don't know which one of us that was. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't me. <laughs> anyway, that is a great hike. But I think this next one might be my favorite. And we just went back and did this a few weeks ago. It's Aztec Butte. Now, this hike does not get a lot of attention. Right. You thought it was a pud hike because it had been so long since we had done it last that you thought, well, it's just only it's only 1.7 miles round trip. It's how hard can it be? You kind of go up this hill and then there's some good overviews at the top of the hill and then you, you know, hike around. There's some other things to see. It's a little bit harder of a hike than you remembered. Yes, there is some definite scrambling on the slick rock. And basically, when when you get to the parking lot and, and from other places too, you can see this butte and that is what you are climbing to the top of. Now, it says it's only 260 feet of elevation gain. It seemed a lot more than that to me. It seemed like a thousand. Well, it's straight up. It's straight <laughs> yes. up 260 feet. And, and the slick rock that you go up, it's as steep as you could possibly walk up. If it's wet or raining, I don't think you could do it. I wouldn't try it, no. But it's a very short area of this slick rock that you are scrambling up. Most of the hike, you're either on a trail or you're on top of the butte. And that's the very cool part because once you get up there, then the trail winds in a circle around the perimeter of the butte. And you have, you've got incredible views in every direction. And there's never anybody there. Yeah. See, very few hikers on that trail. Coming down off the butte is a little easier than going up. And then there is a spur along the trail that you will see, and it will take you on a side trip to the granaries, uh, which are some archaeological, well, they were grain storehouses, weren't they, Matt? Yeah, they they look like uh, miniature Puebloan ruin homes. But when you get to them, you can see they're, they're too small for people to have lived in them. And what they think they are is that they use them to, to store things like grain or seeds uh, to keep them away from critters and, and weather and what have you. And they're cool to see. And they're, and they're in good shape. I think it's my favorite because when you combine the fun scramble, the incredible views, the lack of people, and then this um, cultural site, it, you know, it has everything. Right. Right. 
And along that road where you park to hike Aztec Butte, if you go a little bit further to the northwest, there is a trail to another unusual archaeological site called False Kiva. False Kiva is a man-made stone circle tucked away in an alcove. Now, we first hiked to False Kiva in 2017, and then sadly, in 2018, someone vandalized this kiva, and the park closed the alcove because of this vandalism. False Kiva became known to the public after a photographer named Wally Pacholka, I think I'm saying that right, he took a photo of the Milky Way from the alcove, and NASA chose it as their photo of the day in 2008. It is a spectacular photo. And of course, everyone wanted to know where this site is. And people kind of beat a path to this area and didn't treat it as respectfully as as they could have. And so they had to close it. Right. I guess there had been vandalism prior to this uh, incident. But in 2018, someone started a fire in the stone circle and then took the ashes, uh, put their hands in the ashes and made handprints all over the alcove with their hands. Just so unbelievable that somebody would do this, and now they have had to close this to to the rest of us. Right, and, that, and they have put up some protective barriers around that alcove now. Uh, you still can hike up to the area. If you are interested in, in hiking to the alcove, the False Kiva Trail has never been on any park maps or any park brochures, and the park rangers will not recommend it to you. But if you ask them specifically, they will tell you in great detail how to get there. And it is roped off, so you can't go into it. But that's actually a kind of an interesting part of the park to hike in anyway. So, right. so it's be a fun, fun trail to do. Yes, it has some incredible views. I keep saying that actually every place in the park has incredible views. But this False Kiva trail is about two and a half miles round trip. There is some boulder scrambling at the end to get up to the alcove. I didn't think it was too terribly difficult. No, no. Also, another hike we did, we did the Grand View Point Trail on our first visit to the park. And that's interesting. It's about a 1.8 mile round trip out and back. Uh, Not a lot of elevation gain, about 160 feet uh, elevation change. And you get to a point where you have great views of the Green River Canyon. Uh, We're going to mention in a minute when we talk about overlooks, there is a Grandview Overlook. So not to be confused, you go to the Grandview Overlook, which is at the end of the park road to the south. You can hike just a very short paved trail to the Overlook, but then Grandview Point is further on. You continue on to go to Grandview Point, which is basically the second Overlook. So we'd highly recommend it. Doesn't take long and some and some beautiful views. And probably the most visited attraction in the park is the Mesa Arch. This is not a long trail. It was 0.7 mile loop, less than 100 feet elevation change. It's a very popular place. It's a very popular arch to photograph. It's one of the most photographed subjects in all of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's crowded. It's very crowded, especially everyone wants to take a photo at sunrise because the way it's situated when the sun peaks up above the horizon, it kind of shines through the arch. So you will literally have hundreds of people there at sunrise with their big cameras, you know, trying to trying to get that photo. It's the most popular attraction in the entire park. And we have only been there once because on our first visit 12 years ago, when we got to the arch, 
there were people who had climbed up on top of it and were standing on top of the arch, getting their photo taken and doing all kinds of obnoxious things. And we literally turned around and walked straight back to our car. Yeah. And uh, we wrote about this in Dear Bob and Sue. And since then, people have written to us and said there are now signs posted that say, keep off the arch. Uh, yeah, at least they're they're keeping people off the structure. Yes, hopefully, because um, that was some seriously bad behavior. And then the last hike we wanted to talk about is the Upheaval Dome hike. That's about a half mile round trip to the first overlook and about 1.2 miles round trip to the second overlook. And it takes you to a view of a crater, which is kind of an odd thing. Yeah, it took them a long time to figure out exactly what caused this. The most popular theory now is that a meteorite hit that area 60 million years ago and created this crater and just the unusual landscape around it. Yeah, that's another attraction in the Island of the Sky District that you might want to check out. Okay, let's uh, mention really quickly some of the best overlooks. These require a very short walk. So if you're not into hiking, these are some great stops. Yeah, right across the street from the Visitor Center is the Visitor Center Viewpoint. And uh, you're looking into the Colorado River Canyon. And you're seeing a little bit of the Schaefer Trail. But also, if you drive a little bit further south, there is a Schaefer Canyon overlook. Yes, and I think that has one of the best views of any of the overlooks in the park. You walk out on a narrow finger of land. And so you have views on both sides. And you can look down on the switchbacks of the Schaefer Trail, which is very cool to see. So those are a couple of overlooks right there by the Visitor Center. Uh, Like we said, if you drive all the way south on the park road, you can go to the Grandview Overlook. Mm -hmm. And then something we did on our last trip is we went to the Green River Overlook at sunset. We asked the ranger at the visitor center, "What's the you know? Where's a good place to see the sunset?" And and before we finished asking the question, she said, "Green River Overlook," and it was popular. But there's there's enough space there; it accommodates a lot of people. It did not seem that crowded. The next night, we were in Arches National Park for the sunset. And it was a complete zoo. You know, in Canyonlands, there is much more space and you can get away from the crowds a little bit easier than you can at Arches. Now that the weather's changed and we went from summer to winter in two days, we've never been happier to have our rumple blankets close at hand. They've gone from riding in our truck on road trip adventures to folded on our couch for these rainy, dark days. We love it that Rumpel makes their blankets from the same performance materials found in premium outdoor gear, which makes them weather-resistant, durable, and most importantly, warm and cozy. Rumpel has a lot of beautiful designs to choose from, and for all of us National Park fans, they offer 17 National Park blankets. A few of those are on my Christmas list, Matt. And as a member of 1% for the Planet, Rumpel is proud to support the work of the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner to the National Park Service. This week, Rumpel has a special discount code for our listeners. If you use the code DEAR at checkout, you'll get 15% off your order. That's D-E-A-R. So check out all the great blankets on their website at www.rumpel.com forward slash DEAR, D-E-A-R. That's Rumpel, which is R-U-M-P-L. So... There are a couple of trails or roads in the Island of the Sky District uh, that we want to talk about. One is the Schaefer Trail, and we talked about this on our episode, our favorite white knuckle drives. 
And the Dead Horse Point episode, too, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about this a couple of times in other episodes. Mm -hmm. The Schaefer Trail is in the National Park boundaries. It's this iconic road, and it descends 1,500 feet from the top of the Mesa down to the Colorado River Valley, if you will. You know, it's been there for years and years. I mean, Native Americans used to take this route from the top of the mesa down to lower levels. They would take their sheep down there in the wintertime. And then in the 20th century, a person by the name of Schaefer built that road up a little bit more because he was taking his cattle down there. And then further on in the 20th century, when they did a lot of uranium mining in the area, they had to make the road a little bit wider to get the trucks up and down off the mesa. And after Canyonlands became a national park, the Schaefer Trail transitioned from a mining road to a route used primarily for recreation, where you can experience the thrill of driving the switchbacks up and down from the mesa to the canyon. It's about 20 miles in length in its entirety, and you can start in Moab on Potash Road and then end at at the top in Canyonlands National Park, or you obviously can do it the other way, start in Canyonlands and end in Moab. Or you could simply, if you're visiting Canyonlands, you could simply drive down the switchbacks to the bottom, skip all the rest of it, turn around and drive back up if you're a thrill seeker and you want to see it from both directions. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It it looks a little bit more treacherous than it really is when you're looking at it from the top. And and I would say if the road's wet or it is raining or has rained recently, it probably can get slick and you have to be super careful. But if it's dry and you're taking your time... I think pretty much anyone can do it safely. I wouldn't do it in a long vehicle. For instance, I wouldn't pull a trailer on that road. I thought it was scary, although I don't typically like any kind of drive like that, where your car is right on the edge of a death-defying drop and there are no guardrails. That's what this is. When we were coming up, because we did it from Moab, so we were coming up the switchbacks, and you have then cars coming down, and it's a tight... (laughs) space. And so you're kind of negotiating with the car that's coming towards you. There are some blind turns on these hairpins. But the scariest thing was, we didn't realize that people ride their bikes down this. And all of a sudden, we'd come upon a group of, you know, 10 bike riders. And that was scary to negotiate them. Yeah, I think there's tour operators that will provide the bikes and then you start at the top and you ride your bikes down and then the sport vehicles follow you. Yeah, so you got to watch out for bikers as well. It is a scenic drive. If you do more than just the switchbacks, you're going to have some great scenery of the Colorado River. We stopped the car. Matt, you took photos. I was too scared to get out of the car <laughs> because, again, a, a huge drop-off. There, there were a couple of areas where you really do have to pay attention. There's no goofing around. You're right on the edge. But, again, if it's dry and you're paying attention and, and being safe, you'll, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. The other infamous dirt road in Canyonlands is the White Rim Road. This is much longer. It's about 100 miles, and it loops around and below the Island in the Sky Mesa. Now, we have not done this one. We've talked to a lot of people who have. That's a long That's a long route. That's a long drive, and generally, if you're going to do this, you're going to spend the night out there because, I mean, that that's just a long, long drive for one day. There's spectacular sites and you don't want to rush your way through it. Uh, So you have to get a permit for it. You have to know where the campsites are. You have to be prepared to self-rescue. I mean, there will be other vehicles on the trail, but 
You don't know how often they're going to come uh, by. And I think it's also a popular place for mountain bikers to to ride the trail also. Mm-hmm. It also has some exposed edges without guardrails and steep drop-offs. I mean, you, you definitely want to have driving skills, uh, self-rescue skills. You, you want to know what you're doing if you're going to attempt this 100-mile 100 mile loop. And like we always say, talk to a ranger at the visitor center, get all the information because there could be current conditions that you need to know about. That's right. Interesting that anyone who drives the White Rim Trail must have a permit, even if you don't camp. And the other thing I thought was interesting is pets are not permitted even in your vehicle. You cannot take your pet on this. Yeah, not even in your vehicle. Right, right. Anyway, I don't know if we'll ever do this. I don't think it's in my bucket. It's not in your bucket? It (laughs) it might be in your bucket someday. Your bucket's getting a little bit more room (laughs) these days, so you might be able to fit this in. Maybe. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on to the next district, which is the Needles District. This is in the southeast section of the park, and it's about... Oh, it's about a 90-minute drive from Moab. I think it's about 75 miles. And then a closer town that you could stay in is Monticello, and that's 49 miles, about an hour drive. And if you're going to stay in Monticello or you're coming that way, actually, even if you're coming from Moab, you would drive Highway 211 west to the Needles District, and along the way, you will come across Newspaper Rock State Historical Monument, and that has one of the largest panels of petroglyphs in in the country. And that's cool to see. We've talked about this in in many episodes. Right. That is an amazing panel. You know, literally takes five minutes to park and walk and look at it. But that entire drive, once, once you pass Newspaper Rock and you're driving into the park, so much incredible scenery. It's a beautiful drive. It's just worth the drive. It is. So even if you are not a long distance hiker, if you like, you know, short hikes and you like road trips, we would recommend driving back there. You could talk to the ranger in the visitor center, find out a couple of short hikes to do. It's worth it just to go back and see the scenery. Okay, let's talk about some of our favorite hiking trails. And these aren't just our favorites in the park, but some of them are our favorites of all time. Right. So first up, uh, number one, and I know we've talked about this in many episodes, is that Chesler Park Joint Trail Loop. Yeah, that's about 10 and a half miles round trip. And that is if you start from the Elephant Hill Trailhead. Elephant Hill Road is a gravel road, but it's, it's in good shape. You start at that trailhead. If you hike it from there, it's about 1,800 feet elevation gain. That's a long day. We've done it a few times, and every time we do it, we're even are surprised ourselves how long it feels by the time you get back to the trailhead. Absolutely. Now, one thing you could do if you want to shorten this pretty much in half, you could just hike to Chesler Park. That's an amazing hike. You get to the overlook of Chesler Park. It's beautiful. So you could just do that. When you add on the joint trail, that's when it starts to get <laughs> that's when it starts to get a lot longer and a lot more tiring. But boy, that joint trail is very cool because you are actually walking through it looks like a slot canyon. It's it's not technically a slot. It's basically two massive rock slabs that are right next to each other with a space wide enough between them for one person's body to walk right. through. It's, it's about two to three feet wide mm-hmm. the whole way. Uh, beautiful light in there for yes. taking photographs. Mm-hmm. That's one of our favorite hiking trails of all time Any in any park. Uh, we've also done the Confluence Overlook Trail, and that's about 
10 miles round trip, about 1,400 feet elevation gain. You start that trail from the end of the park road. You didn't like it as much as I did. I thought the uh, view of the confluence was beautiful. We sat up on a rock high above it and had lunch. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. The only thing is for a fairly long section of it, you're walking on a dirt road. You're walking on a road that Jeeps and, and all kinds of backcountry vehicles take. So that that was the only kind of bummer for me. The first part of it was gorgeous. The overlook was good too. But but walking along that dusty dirt road with Jeeps going by us, I thought was was kind of a downer. So also in the Needles District, uh, if you've already done Chesler Park or you're you're there and you, you want something else to do, is the Druid Arch hike. And again, leave from the Elephant Hill Trailhead. It's exactly the same distance, 10 and a half miles round trip, about 1,600 feet elevation gain. Different, but also a great hike. And you get views of the needles. You see an interesting arch back there. There's some scrambling. There's a there's a couple of exposed areas you got to be careful of on the on the trail. But uh, we really enjoyed that hike as well. We loved it. When you get to the end, you can kind of see Druid Arch, and there is a fairly big rock scramble up. It looks a lot more intimidating than it actually was. When I saw it, I thought, oh, there's no way. But then we kind of just started picking our way through the rocks. There was a, almost a faint trail through uh, through these boulders, and it was not nearly as hard as it looks. So I would encourage anybody and everybody, if you get to that point, don't turn around. Go ahead and make the final push up because you won't regret it. It's amazing. Yeah, there's at least one ladder that helps you up some mm-hmm. some of the steeper areas. It was <laughs> it was actually snowing on us when we were going up and down <laughs> that ladder, so it was a little little slick. But uh, you know, we probably did it at the most slick conditions you could have because mm-hmm. it was snowing. And we got through it fine. Right. Now, a couple things. You are starting on the same trail as Chesler Park, and you're going at least a mile on that same trail. And then there's a sign, a turnoff for Druid. We would not recommend, unless you are an extremely strong hiker, that you try to do Druid and Chesler Park and Joint Trail in one day. Oh, yeah. That's a long day. Yeah. That would be extremely difficult. Uh, The other thing we wanted to mention is that... Like a lot of parks in Utah, but but especially in the Needles District, a lot of these hikes, you are guided by cairns. You know, a lot has been said on social media and through the parks about, you know, don't build cairns. And if you see them, knock them down. The park has put these cairns up to guide people. And if anybody were to knock those down, people would be lost out there forever. That's that's right. There are places on where it's just slick rock. The only way you know where to go next is you're going from cairn to cairn. And in those cases, uh, I know people like to knock them down because they don't want to see anything in the wilderness, but people will get lost, like you said. Um, So don't knock them down in the Needles District because they're really there to show people the way. And uh, the Slick Rock is not, it's not worn enough. It's not dirty enough that you would see the trail anyway. The best advice, and the Park Service tells people this, is let the Park Service take care of the cairns. If they shouldn't be there, the Park Service will take them down. But usually, especially in these Utah parks where it's the trail is on Slick Rock, the park has built these cairns to guide people. Okay, so where to stay if you're going to go to Needles? Like we said, uh, you could stay at Moab. Uh, it's not that far of a drive there and back. Uh, Mont- Monticello is closer Uh, There's also Blanding, which is south of Monticello. Now, you can also camp in the Needles District at the Needles Campground. If you're looking at maps, uh, it used to be Squaw Flat. So if you see Squaw Flat, it's now been renamed to the Needles Campground. 
you can book loop B of that campground up to six months in advance. And uh, that's in the peak seasons, March 15th through May and September and October. Loop A of that campground is available on first come first serve basis. Now, if you want to reserve a a spot there, you can do that on recreation.gov. Yes, we got nixed out, much to our disappointment. We had plans to camp there a couple years ago. We were all ready. We got there early. This was before March 15th, uh, so we weren't able to make a reservation in Loop B. (laughs) And we drove through Loop A and Loop B, and the car in front of us literally got the very last campsite. We were so disappointed. Yeah, so if, if you're doing that, if you're trying to do first come, first serve, you want to get there early. I mean, like seven o'clock in the morning or something like that. And, and you kind of have to <laughs> like trying to get a parking spot at holiday season at the mall. You kind of have to drive around and see if somebody's packing up and, and then ask and, them, and, and are say, you Hey, leaving? are you guys leaving? Do you mind if we just sit here and watch you pack up and then pull the reservation sign uh, on, on this spot as you're leaving? There's also right outside the park is Needles Outpost, and that's a campground. It's privately owned. We have never been there. Uh, it's changed ownership in the last few years, but that's also an alternative. And then along that road to the park, uh, Highway 211, there's a lot of BLM land, and you can disperse camp in the Bureau of Land Management land there also. Right. And when we got nixed out on the campsite, uh, we ran into a ranger in the campground and and we were just talking with him and telling him that we didn't get a spot. He suggested dispersed camping right outside the park. But the problem is we were tent camping, which is a different thing than if you are if you have a rooftop tent on your truck or if you have a van you sleep in or or a trailer. Yeah. And we were hesitant to set up a tent on random, scrubby BLM land where there could be rattlesnakes and spiders hiding. (laughs) What what do you not like about it? The scrubbiness or that there's no other people around? Well, the way I picture it is there isn't an established campsite. You're just parking your car along a dirt road, right? So now you're taking your tent and you're putting it on land that hasn't been cleared. So you might be putting it on one of those... um, you know, what are those scrubby plants called where anything could be hiding you're, underneath? So you're worried that we're going to put our tent on top of a scrubby plant. And there's going to be a, a rattlesnake a, a hiding underneath it. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think most of the dispersed camping, there are actually little pull-offs and other people have camped there before. It's a little bit more cleared than that. But if we have to put the tent on top of a scrubby plant, I'll check for snakes before we do it. But I don't think that's going to happen. Well, no, the dispersed camping isn't going to happen in a tent for sure. We ended up in a hotel in Monticello. Uh, No scrubby plants, no rattlesnakes and no spiders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, um, one other thing about the Needles District quick before we move on to the next is if you look at a map, there are a lot of trails, longer trails that lead off to the south of the district. And we've run across hikers who backpack into the wilderness and multi-day trips that kind of lead into the Bears Ears area. So there's that also. You need to know what you're doing if you're doing those multi-day trips on those trails. All right. Should we move on to the maze? And there's a good reason it's called the maze. (laughs) Yeah, the maze district. um, It's the least accessible area of Canyonlands National Park. And it's just, it's remote. 
the roads are difficult. They're uh, difficult to drive on. They're difficult to navigate. Uh, it requires a lot more time. I mean, the park is really recommending that you need to know what you're doing. You need to be an overlander and have some experience uh, in rough areas, have the proper equipment, have enough gas, probably carry extra fuel with you, know how to self-rescue, go with a buddy. You know, it'd be better if there's two or three vehicles together so that you can help each other out if one of you gets stuck. Yeah, our buddy Craig tried to do this um, like two years ago, he and his wife, and they have, um, so they have a TRD Pro like we do, but then they pull behind that the Turtleback trailer, which is a very rugged overland trailer. So they <laughs> they drove all the way back there, which is a very long drive. They, they set out and I think they got about five minutes into the maze and he showed us a video they had to not only stop, but they had to turn around and try to get out of there because all of a sudden he was literally driving on these massive boulders downhill over one and up another and and the car's rocking and the turtle back is rocking. It, it looked <laughs> very sketchy. He, he, he said he quickly got in over his head. Yes. So if you're going to the Maze District, you got to check in at the Hands Flat Ranger Station. It's open year round. Um, that's where you'll meet a ranger who will discourage you from going <laughs> into the maze or at least look you up and down and make, make sure that you're prepared. Yeah, so I don't think we will ever be trying this on our own. However, there are some guides and some outfitters who will take you out there. And I would like to do that. We could skip White Rim and, and go to the maze with, with somebody who is an expert in that area. Yeah, that, that might be fun to do. And not a lot of people go there. Uh, there's only about three or 4,000 visitors a year to the maze. So yeah, y if you go back there, you're, you're going to have some solitude. Absolutely, for good reason. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the fourth district, which is Horseshoe Canyon. And this is a separate piece of land that is not connected to the rest of the park. It is west of the island in the Sky District. And what's interesting about this area is Horseshoe Canyon. It contains some of the most significant rock markings in North America. Yes, the Great Gallery is the best known pictograph panel in Horseshoe Canyon. Um, it has these life-size figures with these intricate designs that are really unlike anything we've ever seen. We've seen a lot of petroglyphs, but we haven't seen a lot of pictographs that are this impressive. Uh, maybe we should explain exactly what that is. Well, a petroglyph is a carving. So the rock has been carved away, and a lot of times they do this on rock that has the desert varnish, the dark colored desert varnish. And so when they peck a uh, design into the rock, the uh, rock underneath is a lighter color, and so that's how you see the design. A pictograph is a painting, essentially. They've used some kind of pigment that is placed right on the rock, and so it's not carved in. Although I think there are a, a few carvings in this area, but most of them are pictographs are essentially ancient paintings. And there are multiple sites throughout the canyon that have these pictographs. It's not just one panel. There are there are several as you walk through. All very cool to see. And some of these are, they say, two to 4,000 years old. It's unique in the sense that a lot of the petroglyphs that you see in the Southwest are 
what, three to 800 years old, still ancient, still cool to, to know that these, you know, humans were out there making these a long, long time ago. These pictographs in Horseshoe Canyon are, are much older than a lot of the petroglyphs. Right. And the style is called Barrier Canyon. And the shapes, interestingly, have no arms and no legs. They do almost look like ghosts. So that also makes them different and unique from a lot of the other petroglyphs in the Southwest. Yeah, and this uh, area of the park was added uh, later. It was uh, made part of the park in 1971. Uh, And I'm glad they did this. And I'm glad that we went to see it because I've seen this on the map and always thought it was inaccessible, meaning I always kind of thought of it like the same way I think about the maze. It's really hard to get there, but it really wasn't. Now, there are long dirt roads that take you there. And if it's wet or raining or has flooded recently, yeah, those roads can be treacherous. When we went, uh, the roads were dry and, and in pretty good shape. Yes, it was actually a lot easier to get to than we thought. So we drove from Moab, you know, so you get on I-70 briefly, and then you get off on um, Highway 24, which is the same road that takes you to Goblin Valley. And just when you pass Goblin Valley, the turnoff, the turnoff to Horseshoe Canyon is right on the left. And then you take that dirt road for about 30 miles. And the road was in surprisingly good shape. I thought, you know, we would be going 10 or 20 miles an hour, and it would take us forever to get there. But you were just zipping along that dirt road. Yeah, I was. And this dirt road will take you to the trailhead for the hike into the canyon. And when we were there, we only saw a a couple of other vehicles. There were a couple of vans there camping. If you're out and about and want a fairly remote place to camp, that's, that's an interesting place that you could hang out for a day or two. So the hike down to the furthest pictograph panel, uh, the Great Gallery, the hike is seven miles round trip. And basically, the first section of it, you're kind of walking a little bit through a slick rock area, although the trail is sandy. And then you descend down into the canyon on this trail about 800 feet and from that point, you're walking through this beautiful canyon. There was uh, there was some water in there when we were there, although it had just rained. But even when we had to walk through the water in the muddy areas, it was kind of a sandy mud, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't mucky. Uh, and and once you get into the canyon, the hiking's pretty easy. There's some sand, uh, which makes it a little bit harder. And there are several places in the canyon where you see these pictographs. I believe there are four sites total, and it's very well marked. I think it would be very difficult to get lost. And one of the things that surprised us that was very cool was when we got to the third panel, there was a volunteer ranger there. Uh, so he he talked to us and told us a lot of information we didn't know. And then he actually hiked with us to the fourth panel where his wife was there talking to some other people. She was a volunteer ranger also. So these people come in from, they live in Idaho and they love this place so much. They come in and they volunteer maybe a week, uh, yeah, a week, a year, a week or two. And mm-hmm. it was great that they were there to you know, give us a lot of interpretive information, mm-hmm. uh, really enhances what you're seeing in your trip and the enjoyment of the area when people are, you know, telling you the history and, and a little bit about what you're seeing. You know, you can read about that stuff on the internet, but it's, it's great that these folks were down there volunteering their time and really improving the experience for, you know, the hikers that were down there. Yes, we loved this hike. It was beautiful. There are trees down in the canyon and shade. Once we got down there, it was just a lovely walk to all these different panels. 
Yeah, and, and not a lot of people do this. Uh, we had asked the ranger how many visitors do they see in a day, and he said, oh, yeah, well, this weekend we had a really busy day. I think Sunday we had 26 hikers. So that was what they considered a busy day. We probably saw in total during the day 15. So you have a lot of solitude when you're hiking this trail. Yeah, so this is a good stop if you happen to be going from the Moab area to Capitol Reef in either direction. It's too far to do as a day trip from Moab and back to Moab. I think it took us about two and a half hours to get to the trailhead. And then when we left there, we were going to Capitol Reef, and that was another two hours. So a lot of driving. Yeah, it is. And and if you do your own research on that, you will find that there is also a road right by the town of Green River that goes straight south to this parking area, that really doesn't save you time because it is shorter, but the road is in rougher condition. And so all the advice we got was just keep going around to the Goblin Valley area and come in from the West. All right. So that is the Horseshoe Canyon district. We should mention though, the rivers, because this kind of looks and feels like its own district, even though it's not considered one. Essentially, you can go on guided river trips, either down the Green River or the Colorado River. The attraction is Cataract Canyon, and the Cataract Canyon starts just below the confluence of those two rivers in the park. And so some of the tour groups will leave from the town of Green River and and take the Green River into the park, and some leave over by the Moab area and, and take the Colorado River. I looked on the Oars website. And it's one of the most popular trips they do. Mm-hmm. I think they do a, about a four-day trip. And I think it's pretty similar to the trips that we did in the Grand Canyon where you're floating down the river, you're spending the night on uh, you know, the side of the river on, on sandy beaches. Uh, I think the Cataract Rapids, there's about 14 miles of, of pretty good rapids, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the exciting part. Yeah, so, so that's also something you can do in the park. Yeah, I would like to do that one too, because seeing it from the river is always such a unique view, just like like in the Grand Canyon and sleeping under the stars and having that experience. I think that would be that would be something that we should um, put on the list as well. Yeah. And I would imagine the view from the Groover is especially beautiful. (laughs) Okay, thank you for that. I had managed to erase the entire Groover experience from my mind. You you want to act like it doesn't exist? <laughs> like we don't go to the bathroom on our multi-day trips? <laughs> on one single toilet seat that 24 people use. <laughs> okay. I, I, I now agree. Let's yeah. erase that from our minds. But everyone, everyone should do a river trip yeah. um, through Canyonlands <laughs> National Park. <laughs> Those river rafting trips go down towards Lake Powell. The, I think the takeout point has changed over the years as Lake Powell keeps going down and down and down. So if if you're into river rafting, that's also something you might want to look at. We love oars. Uh, we've done trips with them. They do a great job. But there are other tour providers as well. Right. And probably different lengths, maybe, right. maybe shorter than four days. I'm not sure. All right. So, Karen, when is the best time to go to Canyonlands National Park? Well, The two busiest times, which are also the best times, are uh, April through May, and then, of course, mid-September through October. And the reason is, is because that's when the good weather is. We found out on this last trip that around mid-October, the schools in Utah have a fall break. And so all the families and kids are out, and it feels like the middle of summer is at least 
crowded wise. So check out the calendars if you're planning a trip in, in some of these busy times. Yes, for sure. Now, I know a lot of families go to Utah in the summer because that's when their kids have summer vacations. It gets dangerously hot in Canyonlands. We we know that for a fact. We have hiked the Chesler Park Joint Trail Loop in July, and we wouldn't recommend it. No, you got to really be careful. One of the law enforcement rangers in the Needles District is a friend of ours, and she has to deal with all the search and rescues in the park. We know she'd want us to tell you that if you're visiting in the summer, hike early in the morning or in the evening and take as much water as you can possibly carry and take a headlamp. Yes, absolutely. People always want to know how much time to budget for any given park. Now that you have an overview of the different districts, you can see that visiting all these areas will take multiple days. If you have one day and you're in Moab, then do the island in the sky. And if you have extra days, then add on some some of these hiking trails in the needles. Uh, And again, as we said, if you're driving to Capitol Reef, maybe you want to stop at Horseshoe Canyon. But it, it is definitely multiple days. So that's our Best of Canyonlands National Park episode. Of course, we haven't seen and done everything throughout the park yet, but we go back to Utah usually about twice a year and chip away at the list. (laughs) Slowly but surely. When I was researching the history of the park and reading about Bates Wilson and his career and, and the things that he did for Arches and Canyonlands, I saw... I saw some of his principles that he lived by and some of his ideas for the national parks and and his mottos. And, And the one that stood out to me the most was he said that these extraordinary public lands should be preserved forever. He recognized that these wild places are vital for us, our children, and their children. Great words to live by. I know. What a, an amazing influence he was on these, on some of these Utah parks and how lucky we were that he had the foresight to protect them. All right. Thanks for joining us today. We're currently hard at work on our annual gift guide bonus episode coming out next week. Right. And we're also working on a Patreon video episode where Matt is putting on his chef's hat and cooking up some of Phantom Branch's famous hiker stew that they serve nightly in the canteen. We'll be showcasing Matt as he makes it and include a link to the recipe. Yeah, I don't have a chef's hat. (laughs) I'm going to have to get you one for the video. Or an apron. (laughs) You need to look professional. (laughs) So if you haven't joined our Patreon account yet, you can sign up today. For only $5 a month, you'll have access to a lot of bonus content. And you'll help support our podcast as well. Right. Now, to see beautiful photos of the places in Canyonlands that we talked about today, we'll be posting them on our Instagram page. And you can find that at Matt and Karen Smith. So stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming your way in November. Mm -hmm.